Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Plus Four podcast, exploring the big wide world of Hickory Golf. I'm your host, Rob Berman. Episodes of this podcast reflect the personalities, the passion, and the pursuit of the game as it was played in the pre-1935 era across the world. Please subscribe and hit the like button to help us build our network of golfing fans coordinated in the United States through the Society of Hickory Golfers. And visit us online at plus4.org. John, thanks for joining us today. We're really pleased to have you here. It's my pleasure. Glad to do anything to help the game. Well, we appreciate it. Before we get going, I think our listeners will be impressed as I am about your bona fides in the game of golf. Could you recount some of that? And if I remember right, when we met a few years ago, your mother has bona fides as well. Would you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, she was a heck of a player. I think she was 14 when she had her first hole in one was scratched by the time she was 18, which of course was very unusual in the mid uh, 1930s. The story I always told was real simple. I was captain of a division two golf team was plus two handicap. And I still had not beaten my mother straight up. Wow. And, um, I told the story at a, uh, a women's opening meeting one time and everybody was shocked. And my mother broke into hysterics because I said last year for the first time I shot 68 and mother shot 69. I got the monkey off my back. <laughs> And the bitch never beat me again. <laughs> but that was the relationship that we had. And she played from the from the regular tees, except when she had matches. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it was a 6,300-yard golf course from the regular tees, and that's where she wanted to be. But she was a competitor, and that's what I learned from her. Did she have a favorite golfer that you know of? No, not really. I think those are, you know, terms that came about a little bit later. Yeah, uh, I'm sure she certainly looked up to Glenna Collette Vare and Dorothy Germain Porter and uh, Mrs. Howe, who I also knew. No, she, her, her best golfer was the one she was playing that day, which was herself. Now, let's not be modest and share, if you will, some of your own credentials. I went to the University of the South and played on their team for uh, four years, was captain the last two years, won the conference and division two years. I guess I got as low as plus two or three at one point if, in today's numbers and uh, played in several U.S. amateurs. But really, I traveled so much for business and I made a decision when I decided not to turn pro was literally to be a club golfer and uh, play at Marion. I was fortunate to have won, I think it was two junior championships, seven regular, five senior, five super senior when I was in Philadelphia. Oh, and I spent a couple of years in Chicago, and I won two club championships at Exmoor. So it was all match play, mm -hmm. which is a whole different game than metal. I still was able to lead the U.S. Amateur for a little while when it was wow. metal play. That's pretty cool. You know, the listeners to this podcast love match play. That's the history of the game. It is, and you learn so much about yourself if you're honest with yourself yeah. about match play. Yeah. John, I don't know the answer to this question. What was your profession? I was in the uh, advertising business, publications, mm -hmm. primarily business-to-business -business media in the transportation world. Uh-huh, okay. So uh, there were very few transportation companies that I didn't see grow in the late 60s and 70s and 80s. Watched companies like FedEx come from nowhere to where they are today. Mm -hmm. And so it was uh, 
also dealing with all of the Asian steamship lines. Oh, so yeah. It was a cross section of a lot of different opportunities. That's pretty neat. Now, a little bird told me that you are member number three in the Golf Collector Society, now known as the Golf Heritage Society. Could you tell us about how you got started with that group and when that started? Yeah, I was extremely fortunate living in Philadelphia. There was a gentleman 20 minutes from my house by the name of Joseph S.F. Murdoch. Joe was the paramount ephemera and book collector. And uh, he was also in the advertising and marketing business. I happened to get to know him not only uh, through my connections with Sun Oil, where he worked, but also um, my father, I guess, originally introduced me to him because he knew we were both nuts. And uh, from there, literally as a teenager, I would sit on the floor in Joe's man cave, as they call it today, but he called it his library. And the only reason I sat on the floor is because every chair and desk had something on it. You couldn't find another place to sit. <laughs> yes. But when the guy turns to me and he says, well, here, take a look at this. And he hands me the uh, Acts of Scottish Parliament handwritten copy uh, and saying, this is where golf started. And this is the first time it was ever written. That's a little tough to handle when you're not used to it. And <laughs> Joe was just so easygoing mm -hmm. that he got me started. And to any collector out there, there are a couple of things you have to remember. Number one, collecting is like streetcars. There's always another one coming along. Mm -hmm. And just because you miss something, you'll probably find it again, and you may even find it in better condition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not familiar when, when the GCS started. Was that the 90s or when 1970. was that? 1970. 1970. This wow. last year was supposed to be um, our 50th anniversary, which it mm -hmm. was, but we had no meeting. Yeah. And we will have a meeting, God willing, this year in the Pittsburgh area, the last week of September or the first week of October. Wow. Well, that's a big deal. 50 for anybody is a big milestone. Yeah. The other thing, too, that I know Joe would take no credit for, but he's 100% responsible for, and that is that the first thing to spawn off of his organization was the British Golf Collectors Society. And since then, there have been similar societies that have started in Europe, Japan, Australia, and all over the world. So I would say if you were to add all of the members of those groups together, it certainly exceeds 10,000 nuts all over the world. Yes, I understand. Golf, collectors, golf historians, hickory players, all of the above. Yeah. The British Golf Collector Society has a beautiful publication, don't they? Yes, they do. Through the green, that is it. They do a phenomenal job. They have a quarterly bulletin, just as the Golf Heritage Society has here in the United States. And mm -hmm. both organizations also have their own websites. Right. I'll put those links on our show notes so viewers can look into that and join. Well, we're always looking for members. It's $50 a year. It gives you access to the behind-the-scenes website elements and also to the four printed bulletins a year that average between 28 and 48 pages. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Now, I know these days you're largely known as an archivist because of your work in the last few decades. Is there much of a difference between the idea of being an archivist and a collector? I think one goes one way by saying an archivist is a collector, but a collector is not necessarily an archivist. I see. An archivist is someone who is saving material to forecast the future and talk about the history of a particular organization. And I'm of the opinion that 
every single golf club, every single country club should have their own history committee or history organization or archives. And it doesn't take a lot to start it. And you don't have to be 100 years old because if your club is 10 years old, you still have the people living who started it. Most of the time, clubs don't have that luxury. And then when they have to go back and say, well, why did we get started? There's nobody alive that can tell you for sure. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned something interesting. You mentioned that the archives forecast the future. Can you say more about that? Yeah. You know, it's the old story. If you don't know the past, you, you may relive your mistakes in the future. And if you have a good collection of archival material, a prime example is the following. We are in a COVID-19 situation right now. It's a lockdown again in certain states. Pennsylvania basically is locked down in a lot of respects. And it's been 100 years since this happened. Right. Someone asked me in the summer, what happened in 1918 in Philadelphia? What did the clubs do? And I has, was able to go and research the records from all of the Marion Cricket Club, which is the former name of the Marion Golf Club, the board minutes and records to find out when they shut down, when they reopened. It took them over a year to reopen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with that in mind, I have collected or kept, stored every single document, letter, email from the Marion Office Board of Directors talking about oh. COVID-19. I see. How we Good. react to it, what we did. So God forbid we ever have it again. Someone will be able to pull the COVID-19 file and say, hey, this is what we did or how we right. did it. That's, that's fascinating. Now, as an early member of GCS and now the Golf Heritage Society, you must have your own personal drive and motivation to collect. What characterizes that? I was a book collector from the very beginning. I had books going back into the 17, early 1800s. And just because of kids going to college and a number of other things, I, I built, sold, and rebuilt and sold that collection three different times mm. over a period of time. I was also a, a magazine collector at one point having every issue of Golf Illustrated. And mm. then I had a complete collection of Golf Digest, Golf Magazine, and Golf World, which interestingly enough was I put it up for sale in the uh, early 1990s. And I just excluded one area that I did not want it to go to. And the dealer came back to me and said, I've got it sold. Uh, I said, fine. Who to? He said, I can't tell you for six months. Hmm. Well, actually, what happened was Eli Calloway bought it. Oh, no kidding. And he was in the process of designing the Big Bertha. And his engineers wanted to find all of the promotional material for the Tony Penna clubs mm -hmm. from 1948 to 1954. And they really couldn't find them. And somebody finally said to him, well, go buy the magazines. Right. They got all the ads. And lo and behold, that's where my entire magazine collection ended up. And for wow. that reason. Wow. You know, I've seen all of those really early Golf Illustrated, and I've always dreamed about having, you know, maybe from the 1890s to 1920. I think a lot of those today are online and available for free, aren't they? Yeah, they are. As a matter of fact, that leads into something that I know we're going to talk about in a few minutes, and that is really how to build an archives uh -huh. uh, and where to get the information. You're right. There is so much online that can be downloaded and put into files, newspapers, New York Times, 
believe it or not, the Wall Street Journal had a great sports section in the early part of the last century. Mm-hmm. And Golf Illustrated, all of these pop properties can be searched. Some of them can be searched with uh, word specific. So you could go in and say <laughs> Oakmont Country Club, and it right. would only give you that information. So there's a lot of different ways and little tricks to getting the past history of a particular club that people don't even know is there. Right. Well, these days, sourcing for collectors seems infinite because of the internet. I'm curious at your level and with all of the years you've been collecting, do private collectors keep some of their sources private? It's awful hard. Oh, it's uh, hard to keep uh, private. It's hard to keep private. Uh, two things have happened, I think. I mean, a couple of major purchases that I was able to make as a book collector came from locations that did not specialize in sports. Mm-hmm. And back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there was no internet. So you could walk in and find a copy of Bobby Jones down the fairway signed by both guys, by Jones and by Keeler, for le- literally less than $50. Mm-hmm. Today, it sells for several thousand. Right. Well, if a non-sports company shows up today, they hit the internet, they find out what it's worth, and bingo, that's the price. The sourcing I think you're talking about is some collector, a lot of collectors work with certain dealers, and the dealers have allegiance to some of their customers more so than others, so they'll give somebody first crack at it. Sure. Or if it's going to go up for bid, they'll maybe give two guys a crack at it. So... It's tougher and tougher as we go forward with that type of a situation. Yeah. So I've always been fascinated by this. You know, I follow very loosely art auctions, not because I purchase art at auction. I'm just fascinated by it. And I do imagine that at the high end of the collecting world, dealers will go to private collectors and some items never hit the public market. No question about it. Um, I mean, there are people that uh, we could go into certain... Certain items, clubs, balls, pre-1900 art, um, the dealers know who those those collectors are. Right. And they will go there. Any smart dealer would go there long before they put it up for auction. Sure. Let's face it. When you're dealing with high-end material, and whether it's clubs, balls, paintings pre-1900 or pre-1800, the collectors know the dealers. The dealers know the collectors. The fun part about that is... When someone calls a dealer up from out of nowhere and says, I've got three of these, and, you know, the phone starts to sort of tremble in the dealer's hands because <laughs> he, he doesn't know where the hell this is coming from. Right. But he's got his hands on something that he knows he can push. I have been in this and been doing it so long that, you know, I've got a pretty good handle a lot of times on what I think something could go for. And then there's a big difference between could and should. One of the things about what I do is I used to be a collector. Right now, anything I've got is something that maybe I help somebody with uh, material on a book and I get a copy, signed author's copy. But my whole direction has been to help other clubs get their archives, history committee, whatever you want to call it, get it started. And also to try and give them an indication of where they can go to fill in the gaps of what they don't know. I mean, there are a lot of clubs in the last 15 years that have turned 100 years. And, of course, the first thing everybody says is, oh, we got to write a book. Well, that's fine. What are you going to do? Put a cover and 100 blank pages and go from there? (laughs) Yes. They don't know their their background and their history. And my objective is to try and help 
other clubs learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. Excellent. We'll talk more about that in a minute. One other question. Is there a standardized uh, commission fee for a dealer? Are dealers taking 20% or is there a standard number that you know of? There's no standard. It's all over the place. Uh -huh. It is some, I think it's normally in the neighborhood of 18 to 20. Yeah. And you know, that adds up because then you've got state state taxes on top of that. Sure. So a lot of people go on the internet, see something, let's just say that's selling for a hundred dollars and they think they're going to get a hundred dollars for it. The misconception is that's what's being asked, not what it's sold for. Right. And then it's also, if it goes through an auction, you know, there's what referred to as a hammer price. If the if the price is a hundred dollars, now it's 118. And if it's in Pennsylvania, you get 6% sales tax on top of that. And then there's shipping and then they're going to insure it. So, yeah. The $100 item, you may get $85 for it as the seller, but the buyer may end up paying $135. Exactly. Sure. John, one of the things I've done is I, I, I'm really into the pre-1900 era personally, and okay. I like to collect smooth face early clubs. But I also read about the beginnings of golfing societies, mostly in Britain. And um, it occurs to me that one of the true dilemmas with their archives is the prevalence of clubhouse fires. And I think that's even the case in some of the early clubs in the U.S., including the Philadelphia Cricket Club, if I'm not mistaken. What does your club, for instance, did they take measures to protect against that or did they also face that dilemma and did you lose certain materials because of that? The Marion Golf Club was formed in 1942 when okay. it split from the Marion Cricket Club which was formed in 1865. Mm -hmm. The Marion Cricket Club burned to the ground twice in the 1890s. Absolute 100% loss of everything. Yes. So whatever was there in terms of um, trophies, they're Records. gone. Yeah. The, the, the minutes of the boards were apparently stored off-site, I think at a bank. Mm -hmm. So they have some of the pre-1890 minutes. But yes, I think a lot of clubs have made major mistakes in not preserving certain items, whether it's by photography. Of course, today you store it in the cloud. I mean, for instance, Bobby Jones in 1924 wins the U.S. Amateur. He brings back his trophy to Eastlake. And that winter, Eastlake burned to the ground. Mm. Over 100 Sterling silver trophies belonging to him and Alexis Sterling we're gone, never to be found again. Incredible. So that you cannot guard against. Fire is going to happen. However, you can have what's referred to as fireproof safes and mm -hmm. fireproof file cabinets for documents mostly. The biggest mistake people make is they think a safe is safe. <laughs> Unless it's fireproof, which means it's got cement surroundings, yeah. it's just like an incinerator. Because the yeah. inside's just as hot as the outside. Sure. Plus, not not to mention the water damage. Well, that's exactly right, and that's what happened when Baldusrol had that fire last year. That ninety percent of the damage was water damage. The fire was on, I believe, the third floor and into the roof, and the water damage went all the way down and through. However, one of the things that did happen at Baldusrol, and Dr. Andy Much did all of the work there. Almost everything that is on the walls is high res copies. Mm, smart. The hard copy is stored 
in, in fireproof locations. So the originals are elsewhere. And that is something that people should do more of. But you're absolutely right. Uh, Baldus were all burned down again in the early 1900s, another club that lost an awful lot of their material. Yeah. You mentioned photography. You know, I do archiving in my nonprofit world, but what I'm archiving often is sound files or videos. That's simplistic and everybody can understand that. It's, it's, it's a different thing to sort of try to have a digital archive of a golf club or a golf ball or something three-dimensional. Let's back up for a second. You mentioned digital archives and sound archives. I had to transfer interviews from a wire recorder. Wow. And that's pre-1940. Yeah. So anybody who's got, and look what the Film Institute is facing. They had the magnesium film, I believe it was, pre-1960, that literally just would incinerate in storage. Right. And anything that we get on film, I put on a DVD. Sure. On a disc. Knowing full well that 50 years from now, we're not going to be able to play that either. Yeah, you're right. So why do I have in my archives a wire recorder, a Wallensack reel-to-reel recorder? <laughs> yeah, very good. A light desk. I mean, all of these generations of, of material have to be visible. And believe it or not, they'll keep, they'll keep showing up. Yeah. We That's had somebody walk in. About five years ago, we had a guy walk into the front desk not a member, just a local person said, I think my great grandfather did this here. You want to have it turn around and walked out. We do not to this day know who he is. Wow. It was a 16 millimeter 1934 film of the U S open. Wow. Incredible. That immediately, I took that immediately up to the USGA and said, make two copies of it. You can keep the original. Just make sure I get one of the copies wow. back. That's and I think that's the, that's, what a lot of people ought to do because the USGA is the single best repository of history in this country. Mm -hmm. And they ought to be sharing that with the other clubs and vice versa. Yeah. So I've seen your collection at Marion briefly. Uh, what do you do? Do you, do you, you do photograph every item? We scan a great deal of it. We have over 250,000 digitized documents in the collection. Mm. That includes a number of magazines, of course, and newspapers, articles of different types. It also includes every contract that's ever been done and a lot of bios on Marion members and people who have won tournaments there. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we scan a great deal of it. And the other thing, too, is I finally got the club to uh, agree a couple of years ago, and we scan all of the minutes of the board of directors and all of the minutes of the pre-committees uh, it set up the split. It's very inexpensive to do. Sure. Number one. And number two, if you do it, spend the extra couple of bucks. And it's not much to have it by character recognition. Yes. Well, you mentioned minutes and various other things. What about member roles? You know, archiving never ends, does it? No. No, it never does. And the better you have roles of members, I'm constantly going to the Marion Cricket Club and saying, was so-and-so a member in 1910? Mm -hmm. And they have them. We have in, in our month, in our annual book that goes out to the membership is a complete role of all of the members. From the beginning or From, the current well, members? 1946 you know, is a little tough, uh, but certainly starting <laughs> in the early 1950s, we have it from every, every year from then oh, on. You mentioned 1946. 
was the was the property used in any way for war training or anything during the Absolutely. Second World War? it was it was actually used in 1942 they they took the west course and turned it into a victory garden mm -hmm. they actually had uh, truck farming on on the entire course they had sheep in certain parts of it and so yeah and of course the other course had been used in the first world war so mm -hmm. yeah we turned them over for that purpose sure yeah that was pretty common is there a role for redundancy in an archive not redundancy but the inability to find something is extremely important <laughs> yeah uh, dr much told me one time he said you will know when your archives has gotten too big when you can't find something that you know exists oh i see what you mean <laughs> and right. It did hit me one day, and then I started doing something. And that is, for instance, let's just take an easy example. Uh, 2013, we had a U.S. Open, and Justin Rose wins it. Well, I've got a file on the Open, obviously. I've got a file on Justin Rose. Well, you would say, well, why do you have both? Well, because we have files on individuals who have done things at the, that Marion. Well, if there's something that's extremely important in one file, I will put a piece of paper in the other saying it's in the other file. Yes. And I wouldn't be surprised at all, John. You may have information on Justin Rose's parents or something as well. Exactly. Yeah. And, and his racehorse, which happens to be named Marion. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Now, I read a Charles Schwab quote once that I've always remembered, and it says, the best place to succeed is where you are with what you have. Is that good advice for any club? You were mentioning, you know, young clubs and their advice to start an archive. You, yeah, and I, you believe I, yes, and I've heard that quote before. And I think what he's really referring to more than anything else is this is your starting point. Yes. You do have one, recognize it, and grow from there. Mm -hmm. that's, that's well said. Other than Marion, what are some other great examples of archives in the world for golf? Well, obviously, uh, the first thing everybody thinks is the British and Scottish clubs. The RNA is the, the only one, really, that is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. uh, the a lot of the other clubs will have a room or two rooms. They may have a, a good book collection or they may have a, a good club collection, but there are very, very few places anywhere in the world that have. Uh, a, a huge archives of any type. One of the things that uh, I believe it's now on the website of the GHS is a list of clubs in the United States primarily that have either archives or rooms. Mm -hmm. For instance, there's a room, I uh, believe it's in Minnesota, one of the clubs in Minnesota, on Patty Bird, where she came from. Oh, right. There are several rooms on, um, obviously, on Hogan. There, are, you, you can go down the list, and a lot of people that you don't even think about, but they played from that particular club. So they're growing, and the main thing is there seems to be more and more of an awareness now on getting started. Mm -hmm. Have you had a chance to see the RNA archives? Yes, I have. Uh huh. We uh, know that they have Alan Robertson's album and Old Tom's album, and you know some things like this. Yeah, I'm not a member of the RNA, but 12 years ago, through my position with the USGA's Museum Committee, I was not only given a wall-to-wall, -wall, top-to-bottom tour of the RNA, then they gave me a little bowl of porridge and some crackers, and I sat there in front of the big window and felt like a fool because I wasn't a member and everybody was looking in at me as to who was this guy. <laughs> but, that sounds uh, like a dream. After that, 
I did get up and literally just wandered through that building for the better part of two hours looking at everything. And it is a, an unbelievable collection. And a great deal of that history is in the RNA Museum, which is the museum right behind the building, which right. I do not believe is directly connected to the RNA itself, but has an awful lot of great history and a lot of duplicate stuff of what's in the RNA building. Yeah, and I think that space is public, isn't it? That is open to the public. It is yeah. a museum open to the public. One thing I've always found touching when I read about these early golfers and the RNA is they would take up funds for widows and things, you know, they, they did right by their own people. Oh, absolutely. Cases. I mean, yeah. they were all part of the same city. I mean, that's what they looked at. That town is what they called it. You know, the gray old tune. I mean, they thought of each other that way. Sure. There was a class structure between the players and the caddies, but there was a, a real feeling of taking care of everybody and taking care of each other. Read the book, Tommy's Honor, one of the great books ever written, probably one of the half dozen from a historical standpoint that I love and recommend to people. It's well worth it. Now, I think you also have uh, strong feelings about the Donald Ross Society, too. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the Donald Ross Society, I think, has done a great job of promoting the courses that he has built, uh, trying to help those courses that are not deeply into the history learn how to do it. They have an annual meeting every year at one of their courses. This past two years ago, this obviously they didn't do it last year, but in 19, uh, they had it at St. David's Golf Club here in Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And I attended it for two days and tremendous seminars. Uh, they have, I think, over 500 members of the uh, Donald Ross Society. So why would you be a member of the Donald Ross Society? Because you're a member of a Donald Ross Golf Club and you have an interest in the history of that. There are a number of other societies that have grown up in the past couple of decades of various different designers. And uh, those people sort of hang together also. Sure. I think one of our own Hickory lovers, uh, Connor Lewis, is involved in helping Oakmont with their archives. Does a course like Oakmont reach out to Marion for input and advice? Yes, we have Oakmont and Marion and Oak Hill, the three of us have been very close to each other. Oakmont did a phenomenal job of collecting material. And they had a gentleman who had done that for a long time. And actually his daughter was pretty good on a computer. So she was able to catalog a great deal of it. Now what's going on is they've got another group in there that has just expounded upon what was set up in the beginning. And uh, Oakmont's done a great job and a good job of displaying it throughout various parts of the club with various displays of different tournaments, different eras. Hmm. And how often, John, do newer, younger clubs, say less than 50-year-old clubs, reach out to you for advice because they maybe value this art form of archiving more than their forebearers? Not as much as I wish they would, uh, but I did get involved with a club here in, in uh, central Pennsylvania uh, called Ledge Rock a couple of years ago. Uh, they were turning 25 and um, wanted to bring back a couple of people and wanted to find out things. And it was interesting because I sat there with the five original members and said, why did you start it? And I got five different answers, which is exactly what you want to hear. Yes. We really do, because it tells you the real reason that the club started. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. In terms of the membership at Marion today, what percentage of the members would you characterize truly care about the value of your archive? Probably a lot more than I know, 
prior to COVID, for instance, we have a register that I put out a number of years ago for those people who come up and visit the archives, which you have seen and you, of course, have signed. Um, I would say that registry runs close to a thousand people a year. Mm -hmm. And that does not, and I won't let the Marion members sign it. And so we already got your signature every month on a check. Right. So we don't need you to sign the book. But it, there's a lot more than, than I thought. And some of the things that come out of that, we have several hundred donations a year of elements and items about golf referencing Marion. Only about 50% comes from members, mm -hmm. 50 to 60%. Over 30% comes from guests mm -hmm. and from what I refer to as friends of Marion. And then 10% comes from the staff. Mm. They get it. They understand what the history is of the location that they work in. And, and why is that? Well, because we, we feel they're part of a team. Yeah. And the team includes the membership, the staff, the grounds crew, everybody who sets foot on that property. I love that. Part of a team. And when you become a member of the team, part of your indoctrination is the archives. And I give yeah. that tour. That's wonderful. When you have new members from year to year, do you do an onboarding process? Is the archive a required onboarding process? It is part of the onboarding process of all new members every year. Yeah, that's so good. When they get their initial sit down with, you know, the general manager and the pro and the head of the house, I'm also involved and I get, I talk to them too. Yeah, that's, that's really important. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned about insurance and archives? Are there any unique elements that clubs should be thinking about if, if they want to start an archive and having to insure it? It's a real tough situation for a couple of reasons. Number one, anybody who's ever been involved in insurance knows that VPAs, you know, valuable personal articles, uh, are extremely difficult to value and if you have, as an example, at Marion, we have a, a portrait, it's probably four feet by three feet, of Hugh Wilson, who designed the club. It's painted by a well-known Philadelphia artist uh, of the early part of last century. Yes, that artist's work is valuable, but that painting is invaluable. How do you insure it? My feeling and recommendation to people has been, look, take a look at the, at the item see what you think it might cost to repair it to whatever level it could be damaged, and then consider that as your number and see if the insurance company will go for it. Right. Um, it's, it's basically a very, very difficult thing to do. I mean, how the hell, if the Louvre burns down, how do you value the Mona Lisa? Right. Uh, there is no answer to it. And, and what is of value in the open market may be of a great deal more valuable to the club and that's the difficult situation sure. however it is also very important that when you go through an art collection as you were talking about it i've had the art collection at marion uh, done three times now and the, the second time was interesting because we had two side-by-side -side cloisonnés done in the late 1800s one was real and the other was a copy and they were so hard to tell apart that the person who was doing the appraisal put them both as real. Mm, sure. And, um, you know, I think, and she didn't make a mistake. It was just very tough to tell. Sure. Uh, I think anytime there's an appraisal done, it should be done by two people. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I ran symphony orchestras for a long time. And one of the orchestras I ran was the first orchestra in America to start its own record label. 
and we were shipping albums all over the world by subscription back in the 1950s. Now, this was all modern music. The truth is people valued the idea of it, but the practical value of the collection wasn't very high because actually nobody wanted to sit and listen to these records all day because it was all modern music. But what I found when I was there is I would get phone calls regularly from people all over the country saying that they found the complete collection of our LPs out on the curb. And they were astonished when we would say, well, we don't want them. You know, I, first of all, I already had one or two complete sets of these things. And the perceived value was much greater than the real value. Right. Are there examples at, at a golf club of things that come up frequently that people assume you would want that you really don't need? I answer that question the following way. I have never turned anything down that was offered to the Marion Archives because I feel it would be an insult to the donor. Yes. But I receive it with several caveats. Number one, thank you very much. I'm not sure if I have it or not. If I do, but yours is in better shape, I would certainly want to replace the one I have. Mm -hmm. If it is not better than the one I have, there are two options. Would you mind if I kept it and sold it and used the proceeds for future investment in the archives, or would you rather have me return it to you? Yes. And I can honestly say I think only once was it returned, and two years later the person was moving to a smaller house and came and gave it to me anyway. Sure. <laughs> so uh, it, it's, it's a toughie. But you just have to say, this is the way I'm going to answer it. And you know what? People respect a true, straight-up answer. Absolutely. Yeah, I like that. Now, with your collection, would you have any need to be affiliated with any museum service organizations like the Alliance of American Museums or anything like that? You know, it's interesting. I've looked into that, and I have not joined any of those organizations for a number of different reasons, not the least of which is, being a member of the USGA Museum and Library Committee and also having Dr. Andy Much working for Marion, I've got all the sources that I could probably possibly need. Yes. Uh, not arrogant enough to think that I've got everything answered, but I think I've got sources that I need to go to for the level of an archives that we have. Now, you mentioned Dr. Much more than once. Could you tell me a little bit about him? Sure. Andy and I have known each other for gosh, probably 30, 30 plus years. He was head of the museum at the USGA, left them in, I believe, uh, like 2000, 2001, went to the University of St. Andrews in St. Andrews, got his PhD, and then came back and started a business. And to the best of my knowledge, he was the first person to do it. There are some others out there now, I understand. But he came to Marion and he said, look, you've got a phenomenal start to a collection. You, you're looking at doing work on framing it, putting it up, designing rooms. I'd be glad to, to do it. And we were his first customer. Oh. He now is doing clubs from coast to coast, helping them get their archives started, helping them build rooms, helping them learn you know, where they were. So uh, Andy and I have known each other for a long time, and he has been a great source for me and for, I, I don't know what his clientele list is now, but I know it goes from Olympic on the West Coast to Southern Hills in, in Oklahoma to Marion to, you know, you name it, coast to coast. What a neat job. John, are there cases of certain items that you know are in private collections and you would hope that one day they would come to the club? And if so, 
Do you engage in discussions with people about bequests? When the word bequest comes up, the first question that I'm asked is, are you a 501c3? Yeah. And we are not. And there are a lot of reasons why we have chosen not to take that route. I don't think it's ever hurt us. It certainly has had a couple of situations where I had to buy something instead of having it possibly donated. And yeah, there are things that uh, that we do chase down. There's a, a 1910 sterling silver cup that was won by the men's club champion and that I happen to know is in the great Northwest. It just happens to be a sterling silver trophy that this collector who is not a golf collector, but a sterling silver trophy collector mm. likes. Yeah. Uh, I've been after it for eight years. I'll get it. It's just a matter of, of when and how. Yeah. Um, and it's not one of those things that is going to make or break me or the club if I, if we don't have it. Uh, it's just a unique piece. And I've got a, you know, we've got some tankards that go back to the 1890s, uh, which are kind of fun to have. But when we, you have to understand, when we started this, this journey, our objective was to chronicle the history of the Marion Golf Club. We didn't have to have originals. And that's why we started downloading the magazines and the newspapers. And as things grew and people would come to us and say, would you like this? The answer, of course, is yes. Love to have it. What are we talking about? And more times than not, it's donated. Yeah. And I'm stunned at some of the stuff that has been donated. I mean, a, a gentleman who played Marion once came back to me about a year later and said, I've got something. Would you like to have it? And I was sort of hesitant. I said, well, why don't you send it to me? Let me take a look at it. And he did, and I was I was embarrassed to take it because it was a mid-condition signed copy of Down the Fairway, mm. signed by Jones and Keeler in a beautiful clamshell box, wow. and handmade. And you know, I said, "This is over the top." He said, "No, no, this is something that belongs in your archives." And I knew what it was worth, and you know, it was amazing. I mean, here was just—he was a guest, played it once. He's never been back. I love it. So, you know, in the philanthropy world, what you're doing, John, is the same thing we do in fundraising. You're giving people a chance to do something really useful and good. So he got as much psychic revenue and feedback out of that as as you get in material good. Well, yeah, and and to that point, I, as I stress to people sometimes, you are now part of the history of Marion. Yeah. I mean, that box is there. It has a Marion uh, book plate in it with his name and date. But a gift of that level also has a handwritten note by me sure. explaining how, where, when, and why. Yeah, I love that. So if there's an item that's going to come up on the auction block and you would love to get it, are you able to cobble together a few members to almost guarantee that you can win it at an auction? Hopefully. Um uh, one of the things that's unique about what we've done at Marion is from the very beginning, since we weren't looking for uh, expensive historical antique artifacts, we only ask the club to give us necessary funds for filing systems, mm -hmm. which is minimal at best. So as things went along and people would come into the archives, a, member, a couple of members would say, hey, John, if you ever need any help, let me know. And today there is a group of people who I refer to as the archives angels. Yeah. Uh, I have never asked anybody to be one. Every one of these people has stepped up and said, we would like to help. And uh, there may be anywhere from, you know, three to 10 items a year that might come up. 
And uh, it's one of those things that uh, normally doesn't have a huge amount of money involved in it. And so uh, we're able to spread it out very nicely over yeah. the, the group. I imagine you do a little private viewing opportunity for those angels. Absolutely. I mean, they get first first crack at seeing it. There's no yeah. question about that. That's the fun of it, isn't it? So I, I have a strange question, and we can skip this if you want to, but it's come up recently in the Northwest. You know, we're going to host the U.S. Hickory Open out here in Gearhart, Oregon in, in the fall. And somebody recently found an aerial photograph of the course, maybe just a few years after it opened. And so often we see these aerial photographs of golf courses. And I don't understand what was the value back then to photographing landscapes the way they did, because it seems so critical to golf course architecture. Do you have any feelings about this? Yeah, uh, a couple of examples, and it really depends on the individual more times than not. There's a place in Philadelphia called the Ethereal Hagley Museum. It's supported by the DuPont Company originally, mm -hmm. and a guy by the name of Dallin, D-A-H-L-I-N, was a World War I pilot, and after the war, he started a company of aerial photography. The DuPont Company used them for site selection photographs from North Carolina to Maine to Ohio. Dallin was a golf nut. Hmm. He had four <laughs> cameras on his biplane. I'm sure he charged DuPont for all four, but one of them only took pictures of golf courses. Wow. There is a huge file of golf course photography for East Coast courses. Now, you're on the West. Probably newspaper files have aerial photography. It was, remember, from First World War until the beginning of the Second World War, airplanes were still a unique item. Yeah, Being able to take pictures from the air was unbelievable. So the National Forest Service took pictures. The National Geographic Society took pictures. The list goes on and on. And there are so many pictures in Washington, D.C., in different government organizations, some you should never even think of. The TVA has pictures of the Tennessee Valley. So all of these are available, and people just have to dig to find them. And we've been able to help some clubs that have, um, Shawnee was re renovating their golf course up in the Poconos. They didn't even know the photos existed. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to be at a cocktail party. I told a guy about him. He picked up the phone and called his father and said, stop construction. We know where their aerial photos are. Now, so, was your was your course pretty barren originally? Oh, yeah. It was a farm. Yeah. It's there incredible were, there, to me. There were three trees on the course when it opened in 1912. Yeah. Unbelievable. We're not far from that now. We got back there. Are there practical measures a club can take to sort of reduce the level of decay in their archives and their collections? I've seen your collection. You've got everything from golf clubs to artwork to tennis shoes and all kinds of different things. Is there anything other than temperature control and humidity control that's practically speaking something a club should be thinking about? Absolutely. Don't go to, don't go to a supply store and buy file folders. Mm -hmm. Go to an archive supply store. Um, there's um, there's one in Massachusetts. There, go to your local library, a, a college library that has a top book collection of uh, 
antiquarian books. Antiquarian, and thank you. Antiquarian book collection. They're going to know where they get their supplies from. No picture should be in a file folder by itself. It should be in an acid-free acetate folder. No magazine. I mean, anything that's paper related just should not be put into a file folder, and uh, just a regular file folder. And, and crazy things like if you have a piece of paper that's 50 years old and it's got a paper clip on it, it's got a rust mark on it. Yeah. You can buy paper clips that have got rubberization around the edges of it so that the paper never has a problem. Those are the types of things. Those archival supplies are what are desperately needed. And the other thing is never, ever, ever put anything in direct sunlight. Mm -hmm. Every photograph, first off, should be digitized. The original kept in the archives and the copy put up, they'll never see, know the difference, should be done in UV ray protective non-glare glass and the backing and, and uh, borders should all be acid free. It saves it forever because... We've all looked in, into places where the, the black and white photo is now green. Yes. And that's sunlight, nothing else. Sure. I mentioned to you privately that uh, we had the chance to look at Dick Estes collection out here in the Northwest at one point before he passed. And you may know that he made a deal with Royal Blackheath a few years ago and bought a very large portrait painting of Henry Callender for roughly a million dollars. And he, he, he gave $90,000 to buy the putter that's also in that image. And I've held that putter. But I have personal misgivings about this, this portrait because there it was hanging in his living room at his home, which is not open to the public. And this is one of the founding captains of Blackheath. And I asked him about it and uh, wanted to know what he was going to do about it when he was gone. And he said, that's my kid's problem. And it turned out that is what's happening. The kids are left with the entire collection and there was no oh, guidance from him. But am I wrong? I, it just feels to me that that portrait belongs at the club and should not necessarily be in somebody's living room. But how do you feel about that? I don't disagree with you at all. I'm not involved with the club. I don't know anything about it. I think it would lead me to believe that there were some fiduciary responsibilities that were not taken properly. Yeah, now, well, had, I think that- They I had think, a real value in that item, both historical, private, and real. Yeah. But how did, how did a club get into a position where they needed that much money? And they've held opens there, I believe, correct? I don't know if they've held opens there, but um, it's certainly one of the earliest clubs and maybe the earliest in England. But I think that the club needed some really desperate help with some repairs to the, to the clubhouse itself. And the members obviously made an agreement to put this thing on the market. And I don't disparage Dick for buying it. I just, if it were me, I might buy it and, and then donate it back. But, but then again, I'm not dealing at that level. It's a very, very valuable painting. And I just, it sickens my heart a little bit to see it hanging in somebody's living room. That's all. Well. I'd feel the same way if the Hugh Wilson portrait disappeared from the lobby at Marion because of a financial reason. I hate to hear any club having to do those types of things. It's almost too bad that it can't be leased on a long-term long use. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I, my feeling is yes, it, it, it's unfortunate that it does leave the club, but at the same time, 
if the club needs it to needs to sell it to survive, it's too bad that they couldn't get enough to at least make a a reasonable facsimile to hang in the same place. Yeah, which or maybe I just didn't do. I suppose the other option would have been to use it as collateral for a loan. That would have been a smarter move. Sounds like they needed a lot bigger, bigger amount of money than they could have could have borrowed. Yeah. Um, anyway, term. but yeah, you're right. It's it, it's a tough call, and and it's not the first time it's happened. Yeah, I know. It was an honor to see it, but it really it 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 lives with me to this day. It feels wrong. But how has your role as the archivist at your club deepened your relationship with the other members at the club? Oh, I think tremendously, and it's a two way street. The giving back to the other members of their desire to learn more about the history of the club is really what's important to me and uh, yeah I get phone calls all the time fortunately I live within 15 minutes but I give probably uh, when the club is operating under non-COVID situations I was probably in, in golf season giving what we refer to as a tour of the archives uh, which of course you've been part of you know five six seven eight nine ten times a, a week yeah so the the archives is heavily used by the membership which says only one thing they're proud of their establishment. Yes. Well, it's a testament to you, John. Is there a holy grail item for you? Is there something for the Marion Archive you desperately would love and you're hoping to achieve sometime? Oh, I thought you were talking about me. <laughs> or you, or you. <laughs> I think two of the most unique things, obviously we've talked about the Hugh Wilson portrait, uh, but some time ago, uh, one or two USGA event contestants badges were given to the club in reference to events that were there. And the first one on the East course was the 1916 amateur. And we've had 18 events since then. We have put together a collection. And, and as I said in the beginning, we were never looking to put together a, an archive collection other than the history of the club. This is one thing that's a little different. And we went after and finally succeeded uh, two years ago in putting together a collection, a collection of every single USGA contestants badge representing all of those events. Yes. And there are things in there from Dr. Maine Porter when she won in 1949, her badge. Uh, Duff McCullough, who was a runner-up in the amateur in 1939, but we have his 1930 badge. We have Justin Rose's badge. We have a badge from um, uh, the two captains of the Walker Cup in 2009. And Leanne Harden, who won the U.S. Women's Junior in 1998. So there are a number of different badges that are in that collection. And it's that is one of the things that I am proud of, that we were able to put that together. That's cool. You mentioned the USGA a few times. Aren't you on the board of the museum? Yes, I am. Could you tell us uh, sort of a little bit about the USGA Museum and uh, good reasons for all of us listeners to go take a visit? The USGA Museum is about an hour from downtown New York City, probably today a little less, but it's easy to get to. It's in um, Liberty Corner or Far Hills, New Jersey, and they have the, one of the largest collections in the world of golf memorabilia, certainly of anything related to the USGA tournaments. Uh, they have the Arnold Palmer section, they have the Jack Nicholas section, they have a Mickey Wright room, they have a Ben Hogan room. They are extremely receptive to anybody sending them an email, asking them questions. Uh, Hillary Kronheim is head of the museum. You can send it directly to her. 
one of the things we have done recently is we have started to digitize a tremendous amount of material that is in the archives so that we don't have to keep all the paper on site that's shipped off to Iron Mountain after we have digitized it. So nowadays, also, you don't have to come to the museum. If you want to do a, a, a research piece on an individual, since we're digitizing the magazines and it's character recognition, the researcher can literally just go in, pull what's needed, and send the email to you with those attachments. It can yeah. be up to 100, you know, it can be hundreds of pages or it can be two depending right. on what the subject matter is. So being able to get that information out to people and helping get that research going is uh, a lot of fun for me. Neat. John, how, do, how would you like to be remembered either at your club or in the golfing world? In the golfing world, I'd like to be remembered as someone who helped courses, clubs, get their archives going and sustaining it. And hopefully at Marion, someone who can follow up on what I have done will continue to do it. As some people say, nobody's nobody's crazy enough to do it to the level to which I do it. But you know what, if nothing else, if, if you set the bar, maybe somebody will find a way to jump over it and that's what's important to me. Yeah, well, congratulations. And we're so grateful for you sharing some of your thoughts today with our listeners. Well, it's my pleasure and uh, feel free if anybody reaches out to you to push them onto me if I can help with their club or any kind of research. That's what it's all about.